Hey, happy Tuesday. Thanks for being with us. We continue through the Gospel of Luke in the 20th chapter today, trying to knock out a couple of, of sections here. Um, we, we've got in our first little uh, passage here, just one of those passages probably isn't one that people really do a lot with, but I'll just let me read it and then we'll come back and, and see if, what we can find in it. Then he said to them, How can they say the Messiah is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how can he be his son? Um, This is a confusing passage. Um, I don't know that anybody knows exactly what to do with it. First of all, Jesus said to them, and and it's not clear who them is, it is likely the scribes and the religious leaders, they have been kind of the target audience for these kind of questions. And then how can they say the Messiah is David's son? It's not clear who was saying that or what they meant by saying it, other than possibly the idea that the Messiah is lesser than David, is down, not down the the physical lineage, because that was actually expected, but the idea that somehow... David is above the Messiah, and so Jesus quotes this psalm, I think it's Psalm 110, where um, David says, the Lord said to my Lord. In other words, he calls the quote-unquote Messiah the Lord, so Jesus then turns it around and says, how could he be lesser? And um, what this means, it must have meant something in its context. I think it's largely lost on us, Michael. I don't know of anybody who has made a I, I don't know of a great sermon on this text. I've not seen it in a book. I I don't know that it has been terribly important to the church of our generation. Well, you got to get on that, Clint, and preach that sermon yeah. next Sunday. I wouldn't know what to say. <laughs> so I, I do think, friends, there is actually a learning here, maybe not a learning directly from the, the, the lesson of the text, but rather a, a learning from when we're studying Scripture, how we can identify passages like these and what we can do with them. I think I've got a really quick shorthand for you. Maybe it's a little humorous, depending upon your sense of humor, but I have a commentary up in front of me, and I love this phrase that the commentator used to describe this passage. It says, the interpretation of these three verses has been complicated by three factors, and then it lists these three different things uh, the reading of Psalm 110 and Jesus doesn't answer his own question, blah, blah, blah. It gives these answers. The point I want to make yeah. here, Clint, is when you're in a commentary and they say, it's been complicated by, or it's a difficult text, or these kinds of things, this shorthand, I, I think what's really important is to give yourself permission right off the bat and say, okay, so full comprehension of what is meant here by Luke is probably not going to be given to me in my reading of this today. If this is flummoxed, people whose professional job is the reading of the text and interpretation of it, that we're not any uh, we're not looking anymore for this is the through line. Instead, I think when we come to a text like this, we can say a couple things. We can say number 1, clearly within Luke's writing and to the people he's writing to, this did mean something. This had an intended outcome. And when we read it, we can at least take away this idea that Luke wants us to know that one of the most revered people in the Old Testament, David, the very one who is responsible for the building of 
the the state, the nation of Israel at its height, and then you know through David's lineage, the temple and all of this worship, worshiping life, all of this stuff that even David stands underneath the Messiah, and and that unto itself is an ordering of the kingdom of God. In this case, making it clear that Jesus is taking upon himself that kind of lordship. That may seem to us as modern readers to be taken for granted. If you've read this much of Luke, the idea that Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah and that the Messiah would be greater than David, it's not going to strike us as generative information, Clint. But my point here is when we fail to get the exact through line because it's been lost to us for whatever reason, that doesn't keep us from being able to still see some of these broader points being made by the text. Appreciate that. Maybe if we're interested, dig a little bit deeper in other commentaries that might offer some other explanations. And then when you're ready to pick up and keep on going in the text you're studying. Yeah, this is not a, whatever was at stake here is just not applicable to us in the same way. And, And so we've lost whatever it was that seems to have been intended here. You know, um, when you, when you read a, a scholar say it's complicated, that generally is Bible scholar version of we don't know, <laughs> but we can't we can't say that. So um, it, it is nice to be reminded that not not everything has given way to our understanding yet. There are plenty of mysteries for us to work on, and and this may be one of them. Uh, then we move on to a passage that is, I think, much clearer, um, much. In, I, I would say much more interesting in the scope of the story. Uh, Verse 45, in hearing, in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to the disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers they will receive the greater condemnation. So if you were with us yesterday, Jesus has this moment where the scribes kind of um, give him a, a nod saying that he has spoken well. And for a moment, there is maybe some good favor, but for whatever reason, when Jesus returns to the the theme, the idea of the scribes, here he gives them both barrels, and he warns the disciples to be on their guard against basically the hypocrisy of these religious leaders who like to be seen, who like to get respect, who don't, this this phrase, devour widow houses, they don't take care of those in need. They take from those they should give to. That's not just about the widow's houses, though that may be a literal reference. It's, it's a bigger condemnation of not caring about those who are vulnerable, those who are in need. And for the sake of appearance, they say long prayers. Their prayers aren't even about God. They're self-referential. And Jesus says they will receive great condemnation. So whatever slight mending of a fence might have been done at the end of the passage we saw yesterday, that that fence is pretty well knocked down and holes punched in it today. Jesus holds back no punches, and he he gives it to them. And notice 
that he says this, this matters, verse 45, this isn't a private conversation with the disciples. In the hearing of all the people, he said this to the disciples. So this is a public statement and um, had to ruffle feathers. Yeah, Clint, can we recover the force of words like this? I think it's I think it's really difficult. I think you would have to you'd have to identify for yourself personally a person who you really looked up to as being an exemplar of of not just your religion, but maybe even your culture at its best. I mean, you the scribes are celebrities in their own way in the Jerusalem community. They would have been uh, very sought after positions within that culture and within that religious establishment. These are people with means. These are people with power. These are people who have risen through the ranks and they've done so at the seat of Jewish life. And so for Jesus to, to, I mean, I guess in modern parlance to roast them so significantly is, is a real cultural uh, statement. I mean, it's not to say that others wouldn't have been cr- uh, willing to offer critiques as well. It's to say that in a season in which Jesus has been ramping up his arguments with these scribes, he, he now leaves nothing to the imagination. He, by saying that they devour the widow's houses and it's only for the sake of appearances that they make their long prayers, is to say that they are self-referential, self-seeking, and uh, power-acquiring individuals with zero faith, but only driven by their own sort of personal gain and and self-advancement. That calling out of these individuals for hypocrisy it would have been substantial had he said it only to his disciples and it was recorded in the scripture. Mm-hmm. For him to have said that publicly at the height of the Jewish religious calendar with all of Jews who were capable from around the world making their way to Jerusalem, to say this thing publicly is, is such a large deal that, that Luke is making it abundantly clear to us. Jesus has... He has sealed his fate. He's made his enemies. Not that he hasn't already, but if there was any doubt about it, that doubt has now been quelled. We know for certain that, that Jesus has, he said his peace and his peace with these scribes um, is not one of partnership or even, you know, um, sort of an amicable kind of separation. No, no, Jesus has called them to the carpet, called them as hypocrites, called them out for malintention. And, uh, you know, they're going to both be embarrassed and they're also going to see it as a threat for what they stand for and, and for what they seek to leverage their positions for. And, and we can guess how that's going to proceed. The New Testament in general, and Jesus certainly specifically has this kind of visceral reaction, this, this passionate reaction to hypocrisy, to people who would use the appearance of faith without living out the substance of it. And uh, that remains a challenge for all of us. You know, there's a lot of that in Paul's writing, certainly some of that in other parts of the New Testament. Um, that that It's found in the Old Testament as well, but I, I think it's really Jesus who gives that the strongest voice. And, and here we have a good example of that dissatisfaction, that unhappiness with hypocrisy being pointed 
at the religious leaders, those who have the very appearance of knowing it all and having it all figured out and those who love the idea that they, you know, that they are someone in that small circle. And, and Jesus says, beware of them, which is both recognize they have a danger, but also a warning, don't be like them. And, you know, if you were preaching this passage, eventually you have to bring it back to us, right? I mean, we love to look at the hypocrisy of others. Um, The challenge is to see that hypocrisy in ourselves and try to deal with it. And so, um, yes, this is a moment where Jesus certainly um, takes them to the woodshed. But in the bigger picture, it is also a challenge, I think, for the reader to um, examine their own life to the end of not being one of these people that Jesus refers to. I think to intensify that, Clint, I would just look to the last phrase here in the text. They, being the scribes, the ones who are using their position and their religious expression for their own benefit, the the hypocrites, they will receive the greater condemnation. I I think that goes directly to your point, Clint, that, that when we reflect upon our own faith and we're trying to learn something positively from this encounter with the scribes, We should be very, very careful, I think, to recognize that the longer we've been in the faith, the more access we've had to discipleship, to what we as Christians would call sanctification, or the the idea of Christ working within within us to restore the image of God in our presence, that others would see Christ more and more in us as we live our lives, That, that that process is both gift but also responsibility. There's consequence when Christians claim to be people of the good news and our lives don't look like good news. When we claim to be people who've received mercy and compassion and we don't share that with those around us, when we claim to be chiefly those who've experienced the forgiveness of Christ and we are known and seen to be unforgiving people, that the consequence language, I think, uh, they will receive the greater condemnation, is is a harrowing phrase. And not to take that literally and apply what Jesus was saying about the scribes to our lives, but I think there are, there are moments in which we see Jesus's approach to the religious elite and we can say, we too should actively practice humility that we might not think ourselves beyond a critique like this from Jesus, that we too should recognize that that we've been given a great gift in hearing the gospel, and so our lives should reflect the goodness and fruits of that gospel to whatever extent we are able. And, and when it fails, that's where we talk about confession. That's where it talks about the humility and courage to say uh, that we that we rely upon grace and, and we seek to turn from the brokenness of our lives. But but here, this, this is a foreboding thing for Jesus to say of anyone, and it, it certainly lands on the scribes, and I think we'd be wise to learn something from it for ourselves. Yeah, and keep in mind the context here. Jesus is aware of the scribes. That they're going to engineer his death. I mean, we're, just, we're days from his arrest and, and capture, and so th- this is coming to a head, and Jesus is um, not pulling any punches here. I want to just push on just a couple more verses because I do think the the next text and the the previous one um, are a nice balance to one another. So as we enter chapter twenty one here, 
Jesus looked up and saw rich people putting their gifts in the treasury. He also saw a poor widow that put in two small copper coins. He said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in all that she had to live on. Now, this, I do think, is intended to contrast with the, the scribes. Right who have the appearance of faith, but don't have the substance of it. And here we have a woman who comes to the temple, who goes to the treasury, and and she lets go of her last coins. Now, you could, and some have argued, that it's easy to let go of not very much because there's not much she could do with it. And, you know, we could have that discussion, but that's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is that everyone else was holding something back, and she holds nothing back. And if you get distracted by the amounts or the coins or the abundance or the poverty, I I think you ultimately miss the point that this woman is celebrated by Jesus because she gives everything. And again, Jesus stands on the cusp of giving himself, of giving everything. Mm-hmm. And so um, this is an interesting story. This story has been used like a club sometimes, a stewardship club. You know, right. oh, be the woman, give everything you have. I, I, there's no commentary that suggests, there's no follow-up that Jesus says you should do the same. He simply points out that while all of those other gifts look good, none of them represent an entire and full commitment in the way that the woman does. And, and I think that I think that's important, Michael, because I think this is a text that can be easily uh, – we have to be careful that we don't take it a direction that I don't think it intends to go. I think that's absolutely true. And I would only point out there is, I think, another connection to the previous text because we have widows in both cases. Hmm. Notice that the scribes are profiting – off of this woman's coins. I mean, she's giving them to the temple, to the religious structure, the institution. Notice how God is able to receive this woman's devotion, even while Jesus is accusing the religious leadership of hypocrisy in receiving it. I, I think that's the amazing thing about Jesus' teaching. He points out the the honest, heartfelt religious devotion of this woman and the way in which it reflects the best of what God calls us to be, courageous in our gratitude and our humility, willing to give as Jesus, as you said, Clint, is is willing to give everything for us, and simultaneously how that's happening under the purview of the people who are taking advantage of her and of her goodness and of her religious devotion. That that tension is in this text, I think, because of where Luke has placed it. And I think that it it both helps to provide some of the shading of the previous story. In other words, this is how bad the scribes are. And it also helps us to see the purity of the devotion of this widow who's willing to give of, of this gift that is of utmost importance to her life. And in doing so, she gives for us a model or a way forward that we could do this in our own lives. We could aspire to be like this in our own faith. Jesus has a wonderful way of flipping things upside down. And so we have a story in which what looks like faith 
prayers and robes and, and et cetera, isn't faith. And we have what looks like a small gift is total commitment, is, is the entirety of the gift, the largest gift that this woman could give and a willingness to let go of it. And so, um, you know, multiple times through the Gospels, Jesus uncovers that things are not always as they appear, and I think these two stories work to highlight that. Clint, we started today with a story that we've got to admit we don't know all of the details about. We end with a story, I think, where Jesus was pretty clear with his intentions, um, and, and all of that is the breadth of the Scriptures, and hope that today you've been encouraged. Maybe you've learned something. Uh, maybe there's been something of value to it. If there has, give this video a like. Share it with others who might find it valuable themselves. Subscribe to stick with us as we continue along in Luke together. And no matter what, uh, until we see you again, be blessed. Thanks, sir.